We have with us today on Church and Culture a man who is no stranger to this program. As a matter of fact, we have done ten previous interviews on Church and Culture, each of those interviews on a book written by my guest, Joseph Pierce. Joseph is from England. He's become an internationally acclaimed author of many books, The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, Literary Converts, that's one of my favorites, A Life of G.K. Chesterton, and a biography of Solzhenitsyn and Hilaire Belloc. He hosted a 13-part television series about Shakespeare on EWTN. He's had a verse drama performed off-Broadway. I did not know about this. Shame, Joseph. Death Comes for the War Poets. He's lectured all over the world. He is editor of the St. Austin Review. He's also a senior editor at Ignatius Critical Editions. And he has received an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College. Joseph, welcome back to Church and Culture. It's always a pleasure, Dale. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me about this off-Broadway show? <laughs> well, I, I, I honestly don't know. It's a sin of omission. Forgive me. Well, you know, the, war, the World War I poets are... Very, very dear to me and important. I assume this was about the World War One poets. Yeah, it's a it's a three uh, three person drama, and that the three characters are Siegfried Sassoon, uh, Wilfred Owen, and uh, a personified uh, Beth, a, a female character who is uh, Beth. So that's uh, that's 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 the that's the backdrop to it. What a wonderful idea! But we're here today to talk about your. 2022 biography of Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith, from 10 books. And it's so so timely that you were able to get this biography out so close to the unfortunate death of Benedict XVI. As you were studying for this book, writing it, and so forth, did you feel that the end was near for him? Well, obviously, you know that the, the, the law of averages are such that someone gets uh, to to the very, uh, shall we say, um, mature age uh, that that uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, um, had reached by the time I was researching this book. That you know it was only uh, a matter of time, but. My, my main motivation for writing it was a desire to defend this wonderful man and his legacy from, um, well, you know, from his detractors. And, and, and sadly, there are, there are quite a few of those, and, uh, and most of the detractions are unjust, and I just wanted to be, to be a champion, if you like, uh, on his behalf. So this is it's an unapologetic apologia, so to speak. Well, let's pursue that, because one thing we've seen in the aftermath of his death or all kind of attacks, and I've seen many lies that I recognize, but what are the main lies that are told about Benedict Sixteenth? Well, it's, it's normally the, 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 the typical response of, of relativists who are basically driven by two things, the will to power and emotion, um, and the fact that... Um, Pope Benedict uh, resisted their relativism, and he called it, of course, the dictatorship of relativism in his famous speech uh, just before his election to the papacy, um, uh, makes him an enemy of them. And, of course, they're not really, they're not really, they don't have the the clarity of mind to argue uh, with reason with a man of uh, the great clarity of mind that, 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 that Pope Benedict has. So it just ends up being abuse. Uh, you know, he's, he's God's Wyler, and they just, they just uh, append labels to him. It's, it's the language of the bigot, quite frankly. And uh, and I just thought we, what we needed what needed was uh, uh, some clarity and charity being brought to the conversation. And that's what and that's what that's certainly what Pope Benedict brought, brings to the conversation. And that's what I hope to bring to the conversation as well in my book on him. Well, the name of the book again is Benedict the Sixteenth, Defender of the Faith. 
by Joseph Pierce, a wonderful book. I read it when it first came out, and I've gone back to look at what I marked. And you have an incredible grasp of his overall intellectual uh, narrative, as it were. You know, from his, the beginnings as a, a kind of reformist theologian with people like Hans Kuhn and Karl Rahner to his turning uh, face backwards or forward, whatever you want to call it, in the 60s when he saw that this reforming stuff was actually bad for the church. Could you talk about that a bit? Yes, certainly. Um, so, first of all, thank you. Uh, a, a, a man and mind of your caliber uh, pays me a compliment such as you've done about um, being able to encapsulate um, this, this this wonderful giant of a man is is is, uh, is humbling. So, first of all, thank you for that. You're welcome. It means, it, it means a great deal. Um, yeah. So, uh, what what I actually hoped to do was to show. Um, the, the, everybody's life. You know, I, I made my, my my reputation as a biographer, and this is a biography. Um, you know, if you want an in-depth analysis of his theology or philosophy, then go go elsewhere. I mean, it's in here, but um, it's in here as part of the life story. So I, I wanted to understand the man, and one of the good things about engaging with writing a biography or researching it first and then writing it is you get to know the person much better. And I, I sometimes actually liken it to friendship that you get to know someone intimately enough that they do feel like a friend, even though you might not, never have actually known them, even though they might have died before you were born. Um, so that's one of the glories of actually getting closer to the human person that you're studying. So I, I really did feel that I was able to get close and closer to uh, Benedict Sixteenth in the course of, of my research. And I, I, and I think what we see, it's not a vote farce, in, in, in an absolute sense, uh, he would have argued and did argue, and I think I think I quote him as arguing that there's a, 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 a hermeneutic of continuity not just in the mystical body of Christ, the Church, but in the life of Joseph Ratzinger, uh, and that uh, he never signed off on the radical uh, you know, reforming theology of Hans Kung or uh, Kolwana or their ilk. Um, he was associated with them um, uh, in, in the case of uh, Hans Kung as a, as a colleague on a university uh, and the case of Karl Rahner because he was asked to help with the drafting of a document during Vatican II. But, but he made it perfectly clear that that document was, uh, was, was edited, tweaked, changed, I might be tempted to say butchered, um, and uh, you know that the actual finished document was not the finished document that he initially wrote. So to, to sort of try to associate uh, the young Joseph Ratzinger uh, at the Second Vatican Council with the likes of, of, of Cole Warner, I think, is, 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 is disingenuous. Gotcha. And, you know, one thing that these detractors, and, and gosh, they're so nasty uh, towards a very loving and kind uh, man with, the, with tremendous charismatic smile I mean he was everybody's ideal grandfather but they come out with stuff like his joining the Hitler youth and stuff like forcing a girl in South America to have an abortion I mean this is just absolutely contrary to the facts right yeah, I mean, it's, it's the usual. I mean, the, the, the problem is, you know, there, there are only two ways of approaching reality. Uh, one is through reason, and reason ultimately leads to faith, and the reason is inseparable from humility and, and the rational act of love, and that's, of course, another conversation. But, 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 but that path was followed by uh, Ratzinger, as it's followed actually by the Church throughout 2,000 years, the path of reason, and the other is the path of pride, which is ultimately the path of self-empowerment. And if it's about power and pride and not about reason and truth, then it doesn't really matter what lies you weave and tell in order to uh, empower yourself and diminish the, uh, the, the uh, efficacy of the, of, of, the, uh, of the enemy. So, you know, these people, because they don't believe in truth, objectively speaking, are quite happy to lie freely. I mean, you're, to make up facts. Power. The parallels with the Prince of Lies uh, are, are there to be seen. Well, just in case our listeners don't want to tell them that 
uh, Joseph Ratzinger, as a 14-year-old, was conscripted into the Hitler Youth, just as everybody reaching, or every boy, uh, reaching the age of 14 were conscripted. And I want to ask you, uh, I believe that it's true that St. John Paul II asked him uh, several years before he actually took the job to become prefect for the Congregation of the Faith, but he turned it down. Uh, was he trying not to take that job? Well, I think that one one of the glorious things about sanctity, and I, I really think we can't talk about either St. John Paul II or Benedict XVI without mentioning the, the, the word sanctity, is that unlike worldly men, they don't seek worldly power. Uh, and I don't think he had a, uh, an ounce of what we would call worldly ambition in his body. Uh, when he, when he, the, the, he was, if you like, um, uh, under obedience, found himself in the higher echelons of power without ever seeking it. And I think that's the story of his life. If you actually look at it, you know, he, he, he's discovered by various people, not least of, of all was uh, Carol Wojtyla, uh, who then of course became John Paul II, uh, and under obedience, you know, ends up being um, one half of what I call the dynamic duo, you know, of, of JP2 and Ratzinger that helped turn the tide against the madness, um, post Nicilia madness of the, uh, the 70s and, and early 80s. Um, uh, but, you know, he, he, that, he exemplifies this otherworldliness that's more interested in getting to heaven than gaining worldly power. Yes, he was a professor for 26 years, from 1951 to 1977, and he became prefect of the Congregation of the Faith in 1981 and spent 24 years in that job, whereas he only spent eight years as Pope. As you look over his career, would it be correct to say he had the most impact on the church during his 24 years as prefect? Well, obviously, uh, under John Paul II himself, yes. Um, and that, that's why I talk about them being a dynamic duo. We have to remember this, by the way, and this, this, is, this is a good repost to those who are Benedict's detractors, that he was chosen by the great St. John Paul II to be uh, his right-hand man. Uh, and that relationship was clearly a, a strong because uh, it, it remained for, for, that, for that 24 years, you said, until up until uh, John Paul II's death. Um, so uh, we really have to see Benedict and John Paul II as a dynamic duo, as two that are in some sense, you know, uh, one in, the, in their understanding of the church and their understanding of, the, of, of modernity and the dangers that certain aspects of modernity present to the mystical body of Christ and their vigorous and rigorous response to it. You know, th- these, these two men need to be seen together. And, that, and it's very important because if you really, when you're detracting Benedict XVI, you're also really detract, detracting the saint of the church, St. John Paul II. Yes, and I want to get one thing out of the way early in our, our discussion, and that is his resignation. You know, I've read, as you have, I'm sure, numerous uh, conspiracy theories about that. And as far as I can tell, none of them hold up under scrutiny. Yeah, Benedict was a man, not just of faith, but of immense courage, integrity, and honesty. Um, I, he, I, I don't see anything in his life up to the moment of his resignation which would indicate an element of duplicity. Um, so this, this man, I think, uh, he didn't want to be Pope. Um, I think he was hoping to have a, a serene uh, prayerful retirement where he could keep his eye on the finishing line um, and not be distracted by, by the affairs of the church and the affairs of the world. And, of course, once you become Pope... That distraction is pretty much right. uh, paramount. Um, so, uh, but again, under obedience, he accepted the, the election and, and became pope. I, I don't think he wanted the job. I think he achieved 
the, the, the goals, once he was Pope, that he felt needed to be achieved, particularly the restoration of tradition, uh, theologically and liturgically. Um, uh, but at some point, I think he saw that there was an, you know, there's a degree of corruption within the church uh, and within the curia that he, as now an old and tired man, did not have the ability to cope with uh, or to deal with. Uh, and I think his hope was uh, that uh, his successor would be younger, more vigorous, and perhaps take on the difficult job of uh, of reforming the curia. You know, I'm reminded of the words of St. John Paul II, who was asked once, he said, how many people work in the Vatican? And he laughed and said, about half of them. <laughs> um, the, the, <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's great. So the, the point is, what we do, we have a corrupt, uh, 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 oversized bureaucracy, um, and it, it, it's in need of reform. And we really do need a, a pope that's going to take that particular ball by the horns. And of course, there's a great deal of opposition from the from the highest echelons of the inner sanctum, so to speak, uh, of, of of Vatican City for any pope that that takes that on. But I think that. The Pope Benedict hoped that, there, that his successor would be young, vigorous, and uh, uh, and courageous enough to take that task on. And I think he knew that he couldn't because he was old and tired, uh, and he was facing a lot of resistance, uh, what have you. And he thought he'd better get out of the way. And I also, I mean, I, I also think that he, he felt he needed to retire for purely. You know, I went back and looked at the video of his announcing his retirement, and he looked totally beaten down and exhausted. Yeah. I mean, when you look at his face and the way he's holding his body, you're, you say, I said to myself, of course he's retiring. Look at his physical condition. Yeah. I mean, he, he'd given so much. Uh, you know, basically, under JP2, you put, as you say, uh, as, as, as being prefect of the Congregation of the Faith, uh, and then as Pope, you know, for, for, for all those years, it's, it's going to take it out of anybody, however well, yeah. robust they, they, they and might be. And I, and I think we have to, uh, acknowledge the humanity, uh, of, of, uh, of Pope Benedict. I mean, he's, he's, he's in the flesh, you know, he's, he's as weak as the rest of us. I'm talking with Joseph Pierce for the 11th time on Church and Culture. His book is Benedict, the 16th Defender of the Faith. It, it's in a hardcover, which I recommend. I always buy hardcover books when I can, from Tan Books. And Joseph, the, he was 85. Now, St. John Paul II died at 84 uh, after a long illness, as we all know. And Pope Francis is 86, I believe. Do you think that this will give Francis a chance or an excuse to step aside anytime soon? No, I, I, I don't want to second-guess the psychology of, of, of the Holy Father, so uh, I, I don't know what I want to say. That What I would say, however, is that, um, you know, that the precedent was not set by Benedict XVI. It was set by Celestine V, uh, many, admittedly many centuries earlier, in the 13th century, but... No, Celestine V is a canonized saint of the Church. Um, so uh, there's nothing wrong, morally, uh, in, 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 a, in a Pope feeling that for the good of the Church, and perhaps for the good of his own soul, uh, that he should step aside when the time is prudent. Uh, and so that would apply to the, to the, the present incumbent as, as to anybody else. Um, so that, I would say that, and of course with Pope Benedict, you know, was... Um, Made a, he was clearly had a prayerful relationship with St. Celestine V in the year or two before his resignation. He visited two separate shrines to Celestine V uh, and prayed be, before them, clearly, you know, contemplating his resignation months in advance of the actual announcement and, and, and prayerfully taking it to the previous pope uh, who had done the same thing and who was in heaven. So, you know, I, I, again, it, it, there's, there's nothing scandalous about a pope um, uh, desiring to, to re- resign. And Dante, of course, famously put Celestine V in hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, I, I, again, there, there are parallels here, because Celestine V's resignation led to the election of a pope that was Dante's political enemy. And so, you know, and of course, 
to be fair to Dante, Citizen Fifth was not canonized at the time that he wrote the Divine Comedy. But but it does it does it does show that we can be disappointed, right? If we have a pope that we think is good and should be doing the job, and he steps aside, and perhaps we're not as happy with the next pope, the following pope, it, it, it's easy to blame. Uh, the predecessor. Uh, I just think that's unjust and unfair, um, and so that's basically what I'm what, I, what I'm trying to point out here. You know, we talked earlier about all the hatred, really, shown toward Benedict after his death and before, but it really sticks out when when it keeps going after someone just died. And, and but when you look at some of his m- major themes, excuse me. <clears throat> Uh, <clears throat> what he calls the dictatorship of relativism. I mean, that strikes right at the heart of secularism. He condemned liberation theology and people like Leonardo Boff at a moment when this Marxist-influenced theology was having great influence in South America and in American Catholic universities. He also defended two sexes, marriage between a man and a woman, and he also was a pope who took priestly sex crimes seriously. Uh, in my reading, and I think you agree with me, uh, he should be thought of as one of the heroes of forcing the church to look closely at these hidden crimes. I agree completely with you. And I, know I wrote a book uh, several years back um, called Heroes of the Catholic Reformation. Um, and mm. that book was about saints of the Catholic Reformation. My argument was that the only ultimate true heroes are the saints. Um, so in Benedict's heroism, we also see his sanctity um, and why I personally have no, no, no qualms in praying to him as well as for him now. Um, but uh, you're, you're completely correct, and, and that's why they don't like him. I mean, he, he did condemn the dictation of, dictation of relativism, and he dictates there, and he criticized those and, and defended the church of those within the church who basically were adherents of relativism. I say, I say in my book, I think in the early part of the book, that one of the reasons that Pope Benedict is so disliked is that he, you know, that if, if, if you have wolves in sheep's clothing, or even worse, uh, wolves in shepherd's clothing, and then uh, you, 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 uh, amidst them, you find a German shepherd uh, who is actually going to uh, protect the sheep from the wolves, especially the wolves in, in, in disguise. Of course, the wolves are going to despise him and hate him, and that's, that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in. You know, it's a reminder, isn't it, Joseph, that what the Catholic Church stands for in 2023, uh, it, it's the only institution in the world that has lasted this long, or I, I can't think of any other, but also upholds natural law, morality and politics based upon natural law, and defends the doctrine of creation. I mean, we are, I think, alone in that. Yeah, completely, and, and, and it's, it is miraculous. In fact, it, it's, it's one of the greatest proofs of the Church being uh, the mystical body of Jesus Christ, is that because in every generation, um, the, the witness of the Church, and of course, you know, the word witness and the word martyr are, are synonyms, that the witness of the Church uh, is, at, is at war with the worldliness uh, of man. And so, in every generation, the saints are, are a minority, in many generations, they're a persecuted minority, uh, and it takes uh, and, and there's always uh, the church is always uh, not just fighting the enemy without the Herods and the and the and the Caesars and the Pontius Pilots, but also the enemies from within the, the Judas Iscariots. And and when you put all that together, and the fact as you as you rightly say that two thousand years later the church is still here as the church militant on earth, in other words, the church at war on earth. We are Milus Christi, soldiers of Christ. But the whole purpose, of course, and the reason why that that that, that church movement has not been destroyed, is it is it's part of a larger church, uh, and 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 uh, which is the church triumphant, the church in heaven, 
and and that's why the church Britain can't be destroyed because it's part of this heavenly church which exists in eternity with Christ himself and uh, please God and praise God I would say I believe that's where Benedict the 16th now is yes I was asked in an interview what I think his greatest legacy is and other than his sanctity I answered by saying it's his incredible corpus of writing. I mean, here you have a great theologian at work. And a lot of people, because he's Pope, don't know about the depth of his intellectual and theological life, but it's there for the reading. Yeah, you you mentioned that, you know, you started off by mentioning his his, uh, sanctity. And I think that the, the two things that, if you like, encapsulate the, the enormity of, of this man uh, are, are, are claritas and caritas, right? Clarity and charity. And the two go hand in hand. He understands that clarity, uh, reason, uh, and understanding of reality is inseparable from charity, from, from, from love, ultimately the divine love, the Logos himself. And he, 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 un- he understands that brilliantly, but you're completely correct. The thing about Benedict XVI uh, and in this, he is definitely superior to St. John Paul II, is his ability to take very difficult, complex, uh, abstract, theological and philosophical ideas and to put them in uh, almost an epigrammatic, digestible way that the non-specialist, the ordinary Catholic yes. the few, can readily understand. Yes. He shares this genius with, with writers such as C.S. Lewis. Um, and it's a real gift. So he yes. has a clarity of mind, but he also has the clarity of expression. And those two, when, when, when they are together, uh, are very powerful. Yeah. I am talking with my good friend, Joseph Pierce, about a book he wrote last year, Benedict XVI, The Defender of the Faith. We're going to take a short break while I get my voice back. We'll be back in a moment. I'm back with Joseph Pierce. We're talking about his great biography of Benedict the Sixteenth, Defender of the Face from Tan Books. Before we continue our conversation, I want to read something that Cardinal Raymond Burke said about Joseph and his book. He said, Joseph Pierce has a remarkable gift of writing about history, literature, and culture in general. His writing is objective and accessible. That is, it shows his steadfast attention to the truth and to language which manifests the same truth in its inherent beauty or natural attractiveness. Joseph, that would make me blush. You have just made me blush. Thank you very much. (laughs) Let me ask you this. As you studied his life and especially his life as a person, If someone were to ask you, and I'm going to ask you now, what was he like as a man? If if you were a friend, a good acquaintance of his, what would you expect day by day from Joseph Ratzinger and then Benedict XVI? Well, first of all, what what a blessing uh, that would be. And there must have been up to a point a blessing beyond my ten. Uh, unfortunately, the, the closest I got to intimacy was researching his life, and any inklings to, to the answering of your question will have to come from that, not from, alas, any <laughs> any 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 first-hand experience. But it's clear to me that he was a gentleman, and, and actually, I'm happy to put it in both senses of the word. In the in, 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 in the modern understanding, a gentleman, right? He, he he was a man who was not a cad. He was a man who was a man of integrity, honesty. Uh, he's not going to stab anybody in the back. Um, but he's also a gentle man. Uh, he has this gentleness, um, you know, that he, 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 he was a man of authentic meekness. And I think where, 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 where this struck me most, uh, uh, strongly, I think, was when, when he came to England to beatify Sir John Henry Newman, as he now is, um, the actual, the vitriol in the media, prior to his arrival. I'd never seen anything like it. Really? I missed that. The baying of wolves. Oh, yeah, the secular media are basically saying, 
we don't want this this person here. We don't want this this pope here. You know, he's basically you know, all the usual liberal progressive God's Rottweiler staff, and nobody wants him. And no one's going to come and see him. It's going to be a complete and utter flop. Uh, the, uh, the the whole whole event. And he arrived, and his smile, his gentleness, his meekness, his holiness. One to me, what I saw was a miracle. Because the transformation, not just first of all, of course, the faithful did turn out in huge numbers, but um, but 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 what I saw was a, a really a miraculous, albeit only temporary, conversion of these secular media folks because they could see that this man is a genuine, gentle, authentic human person who's not the aggressive Rottweiler of a bully that they that their stereotypes have led them to believe. When they saw the person in the flesh, he won them over. And by the time he left, they were almost eating out of his hand. <laughs> for me, there was no human, there's no human explanation for that, except that genuine, authentic sanctity uh, and the manifestation of love, which is always the outpouring of such sanctity, uh, wins over hearts, souls, and minds. And there's, there's, I think there's a lesson there for all of us. Yeah, I mean, John Paul II, St. John Paul II had that gift as well, but he was more of a vigorous man, more of a outgoing man. And as I said at the top of this show, uh, Benedict XVI was, was grandfatherly, and uh, you could see him playing a role in Heidi, for example, you know. And so... But yet this meek man had one of the greatest minds in the world and one of the deepest forms of education in the world. He was competent in history, philosophy, obviously theology. Uh, he was an excellent pianist. He, he knew classical music inside and out. His older brother was a choir master, also a priest. Uh, he was no one you wanted to tangle with in an argument. No, and what what I think is is is, is the real the, the mystery, the paradox of the phenomenon who is uh, Benedict XVI, is that he combined this gentleness, this meekness, this quietness, this quieted quietitude, quietude, with uh, immense courage. Uh, in, in other words, that yes, he's not going to shout at you. Uh, he's not going to have the athletic response of, of, of a St. John Paul II. Um, but he's going to be uh, a formidable foe without raising his voice. Um, and and, and, I, and, I, and this, this combination of meekness and courage, I mean, all the saints have it. It's, it, it's a mark of sanctity. But it's not what the world understands, right? Courage is, courage is being loud and noisy and, and beating people about the head. You know, um, whereas actual fact from the perspective of, 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 of holiness, no, to, to, to be courageous is to be meek. Again, I'm talking with Joseph Pierce about his book, Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith. Now, I went to my bookshelf a few days ago to get ready to talk to you, and I found you know, a pretty big shelf of Benedict books and Rotzinger books. But if somebody's listening to us and says, okay, I'm going to accept the challenge. I'm going to read about, I'm going to read his theology. I'm going to read his, his ideas on liturgy, on uh, the culture. Where do you think they should start? Well, I th I'm going to begin with what I think is ultimately his most important, um, and, and that is his master work uh, published in 2000, The Spirit of the Liturgy. And I think that, you know, again, he obviously did, did that under the mantle of uh, St. John Paul II, that, that, that there's no way it's unthinkable that he would have uh, brought out a work without having uh, St. John Paul II see it and approve it. Um, you know, otherwise, he would be putting St. John Paul II in the barrister situation. So though St. John Paul II did not, um, uh, in a forthright way, advocate what, uh, what um, uh, Benedict uh, Ratzinger then uh, argues, the theology of the liturgy, the, the fact that the liturgy is not just uh, a piece of entertainment, 
uh, it's something which is the, is the prayer of the church, which is wrapped up and bound by and liberated by, ironically and paradoxically, uh, the theology which informs it. It is the uh, liturgical dance. Uh, it's timeless. Uh, and, and, the, and the fact is that uh, it's really a divine work of art. Uh, it, 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 the the, the um, author of it ultimately is Jesus Christ. Uh, and then working through the magisterium, his teaching authority and his mystical body. Uh, that is something which it transcends and supersedes any human tampering. And I, and I, and I think that what, uh, what um, Ratzinger did there was to just show us, with his brilliant mind, the uh, theology of the liturgy, and how the liturgy is something sacrosanct, something sacred, that cannot be desecrated, by um, uh, our own, uh, should we say, bringing our own personalities to the tampering and deforming of it. And I think that's important. I think he thought it's important because obviously one of the major uh, aspects of his papacy was the uh, Motu Proprio Samorum Pontificum, which defended the, the hermeneutic of continuity, the hermeneutic, hermeneutic of tradition uh, in the church as a whole, but of course specifically in its liturgical uh, worship. So I think that that would certainly be it. And, and the other thing I would mention, uh, and uh, the other side of things, is the earlier in his earlier career, he gave a series of, of, of lectures or homilies on uh, the Book of Genesis and the anthropology uh, that, that that informs that, which is of course the anthropology is itself informed by theology, by knowledge of God. Um, that 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 uh, also is. Profoundly deep. I mean, if we, if we get the if we get anthropology wrong, we get everything else wrong. You read you read uh, Ratzinger on anthropology, and it sets you on the right track. So those two things. What's the name of that book, Joseph? I knew you were going to ask me that, and I've forgotten. <laughs> because I I don't have it. I, 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 I want to read I, it. I, I could scurry to my copy of the book, but uh, I, I yeah, but I've already. Well, let's just say if gone. you want to. The, the one thing the one thing I've said, you know right from the beginning is that I'm not a theologian, I'm a biographer, so this is a work of a of, a, uh, of homage uh, rather than a deep work of theological um, Well, you're a pretty uh, good theologian, Joseph. Well, I, I, I play to my strengths and I, I acknowledge my weaknesses. How about that? Yeah, but, I mean, you can't have done all you've done without some basic grounding in theology. I mean, you didn't go to Princeton Theological Seminary like I did. But then that's where I discovered the Catholic faith at a Presbyterian seminary. But the yeah, I mean, uh, but really, you know, if you, the thing about the Catholic Church is it is rational, uh, and it all fits together. So once you work out how it works, most of it falls into place, not just theologically, but simply logically. You know, so uh, but that's um, uh, that, that's the key thing for me. Is it's um, it's like Chesterton. I mean, Chesterton does not have a college degree, but he has a logical mind, uh, and you know, if, if, if you have a logical mind, you're going to follow the logic of the church, but in great minds such as, as Thomas Aquinas or, or, or Pope Benedict. So, so we, we looked at for the coming announcement somewhere in the future of, uh, of a St. Benedict XVI and as a doctor of the church. Do you think that will happen? Oh yes, uh, uh, you know I, I don't I, I don't trust myself as a prophet. I have a track record of getting things wrong. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I, 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 for me, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, is a saint. I believe he's already uh, uh, having his reward. Um, I, 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 the mystery of, of how we get to the church triumphant via the church suffering is something which I'm not prepared to pontificate on. But uh, but the ultimate destination of where Joseph Ratzinger is going to end up uh, is in the eternal presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in heaven. I have no doubt about that at all. And he's also one of the greatest minds of the church. And to answer your question, I scurried while we were talking. The the, 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 the book I was talking about is In the Beginning, A Catholic Understanding of the Story of Creation and the Fall. It's actually published by our Sunday Visitor in 1990 in the English edition. So that's the answer to, 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 to that. That's Thank the other you. book I would recommend. I'm going to be grabbing that. Uh, so he wrote three encyclicals, and he was in the middle of an encyclical, uh, I believe, 
when he resigned. Am I right? I wasn't aware of that. Sorry. Well, let's talk about his three encyclicals. There's the uh, which, when I remember when I read them when they came out, I was just dazzled and moved deeply by them. Uh, you had the first one uh, on, wasn't it? Well, help me. Was it on hope? hope? Yeah. Hope. Yeah. And then you had the one on God. You had God is love. You had saved by yeah. hope. And caritas in veritate, love and yeah. truth. The encyclical he didn't finish was going to be on faith. And okay, I, did, I didn't. I didn't know about the fourth one, so I apologize. Oh uh, well, for that. I just happened to come across that. Uh, what do you think? Uh, about his encyclicals, did they have the? You think back to Saint John Paul II and some of his encyclicals, especially the ones on moral teaching, which had tremendous impact, you know, worldwide. Uh, what do you think of? What kind of impact did these have? Well, I, I, I don't think at the time that they had as much, and I think it's largely because he was not grappling with what St. John Paul II called the culture of death as directly, or the dictation of relativism as he himself had called it. Uh, he's dealing with theological virtues um, you know, of hope uh, and faith, as you say, he was working on. Uh, Caritas in Veritate, uh, if I'm going to be honest with you, I thought was a little bit uh, flabby. Um, I, I, I think there was, it was not as concise as it could have been. And I think that part of the problem is, and this is the trouble, of course, I mean, I have great respect for the, 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 the social teaching of the Catholic Church. Uh, Verum Navarum and Quadigesimrano and Centesimus Annus are all, all, for me, pillars of, of how the Catholic Church has approached the problem of political modernity and, and social modernity and economic modernity. But, um, but I think Caritas and Veritate was, was part of that tradition, and, of course, most of it's wonderful. But sometimes the danger is when you're writing about contemporary politics, economics, um, sociology, uh, you're you're out of focus. When you get too close to something, you're you're seeing it myopically. And, uh, you know, I I think, for instance, there's an element of naivete with respect to globalism, an element of naivete with respect to the United Nations uh, in it. So, you know, I'm not... I, I certainly... Obviously, that's not a... He wasn't speaking es cathedra. I'm not being heretical in in in, in questioning aspects of of of, um, uh, of of his encyclicals. And, and there is a there's a there's a chapter in my book about it. But obviously, the vast the you know, vast vast bulk of it is, is great. But if I'm going to look for chinks in the armor, then you know, personally speaking, I think I can see them. Well, it was published in 2009. So he was, I think, about 81 at the time. And, of course, in all, all the popes have theologians writing rough drafts for them. Yeah. You know, they, they'll, they'll rely very heavily on a theologian that they think really gets it and can create a first draft for them then to uh, finish. And so... These kind of uh, naivetes that you find in this particular encyclical, of course, are very common naivetes in the political left of the Catholic Church. Yeah, exactly, and I think that that's the trouble. There is there is a shall we say a blind optimism uh, that certainly you would not accuse uh, Benedict XVI of, uh, of suffering from uh, that, that believes you can bring some sort of utopian peace. Through um, through some global uh, world order, you know. Ultimately, um, Lord Acton was right when he said that um, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. When you when you if you're going to get political bodies that are bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more divorced from ordinary people, they're going to be corrupt, and and, and that that should have been a guiding principle of, uh, 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 before we start sort of being somewhat naive in our discussion of the role of the United Nations in a, in a global future. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that sort of thing, uh, I think, is problematic. But, uh, you know, this is, this is like just saying that, uh, that, that, that um, 
Joseph Flatlink is not perfect, and we knew, we knew that anyway. Well, he, he'd be the first to admit it, right? Exactly. exactly. But I, I was very taken with Spey Salvi, Saved by Hope. Oh, yeah, well, you won't even be the comment. <laughs> yeah. I haven't read it for a long while. I probably haven't. I, I, if I were to be honest with you, and and, and uh, if I were not to be honest talking about Pope uh, Benedict Sixteenth, I'd have to go straight to confession. So, you know, I, I think the only time I read that encyclical was doing my research for the book, uh, and I took out the salient parts of it and, and quoted from it in the chapter. Um, uh, but, you know, am, am I in a position to wax learned on uh, on its... Uh, uh, profundity. No, I'm not, and I'm not Joseph, going to you know to me. I'm going to ask you stuff like this. You should know that. <laughs> Listen, it's one of the reasons I, 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 I say to Susanna, my wife, that there are two types of interview in the border sense of the world. There are the interviews I can som- somnambulate through, um, <laughs> because, you know, you can't answer the question in my sleep because they're predictable when I've answered them already many times. Or, or there are there there's only a handful, it's less than a handful, which you are... Um, of uh, the, the illustrissimi um, that, that, that make me think on my feet and on my toes uh, because you are, I mean, you know, you, you, we, we're, we're dealing with profundities here, right? And yeah. and and uh, I like being pushed to my limit and beyond, and I'm very very happy to be shown my limitations because a it's good for my humility, and if I don't if I if I don't feel humiliated, it's because I have humility. <laughs> I do feel humiliated because I don't have it. So either way, I'm a winner. Well, I'm sure if the roles were reversed, you could find many vacuities in my in my memory and mine. Well, I do want. As, I as do want. Just, uh, as, as we both just mentioned, the fact that someone who's who, who's beyond both of us supersedes both of us in terms of uh, holiness and, uh, and intelligence in in, in the. Uh, uh, in, in the person of Benedict Sixteenth, and we just yes. talked about the fact that even he uh, says occasional things that are not quite right, then I think we're in good company. One thing I didn't know was the influence of the Italian-German theologian Romano Gordini on, on Ratzinger when he was a young man before he became a college professor. Uh, what, what kind of influence was that? Well, I think Romano Guardini was one of a, a, a relatively robust few who were being both adventurous in terms of looking at modernity, uh, should we say, with an element of uh, creativity, but always being rooted in orthodoxy. You know, because there's a certain type of orthodoxy, and I'm not condemning this, I'm not even criticizing it, which basically just restates what's already been stated, and, 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 and that needs to be done over and over and over again, because every generation forgets it. Um, but there's also that which engages with, uh, with the present. And this is, uh, this is actually what authentic adornamento is meant to be, where you can be rooted in the timelessness of theology and the timelessness of orthodoxy, and, and because of that timelessness, you know, the, the paradox is that which is timeless is always timely. So how do we take these timely, timeless truths and apply them to the situation of the 20th century? Romano Guardini did that with brilliance, and it's no, no surprise that great minds such as Ratzinger should have gained a great deal from him. You know, another thing that uh, uh, Ratzinger, when he was Ratzinger, uh, was to push through, help to push through the, uh, the document on the Jews, Nostra Aetate. Uh, there, were, there was a big faction at Vatican II that wanted to kill that document. And he helped to well, push the, it through. Yeah, yeah well, then the difficulty, of course, uh, as regards dealing with the issue at all, uh, is the cataclysm of, of the Holocaust. Um, and and that what 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 that's done, if you like, is is made the whole topic something which is politically charged, um, and it shouldn't be because everything everything should be subject to ratio, right, to to, to reason and to charity. Uh, and the two, as we've said uh, continually throughout this conversation, the two are inseparable. Um, and and you know, we have to be able to approach uh, the. the 
the, the, the Jews as a people, the Jews as a the, Judaism as a theology, um, uh, with uh, clarity and charity. And, and, and you know, Ratzinger was absolutely able to do that. Um, the, the, the Catholic Church's authentic teaching authority and its magisterium has always been able to do that. But it's become very difficult. It's like, again, with the Regensburg Address. I mean, what Pope, uh, Pope Benedict was doing in the Regensburg Address was saying, it's, we, we have to keep faith united to reason. But, you know, insofar as he criticized Islam for failing to do that, he was seen to be uh, a bigot or even a racist for criticizing Islam. Because if you criticize Islam as, 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 as a creed, somehow you're, you're criticizing people who believe in the creed. I mean, this, again, this is the dictatorship of relativism. You can't, you can no longer discuss, right, the, 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 the difference, the different creeds of humanity in a sane, in a, in a, in a, in and sanctity, um, because everything is politically charged and emotionally charged. This is the dictatorship of relativism. It is the end of argument, because everyone's scared to say anything that might offend somebody else. I'm talking to Joseph Pierce, about his major biography, which came out in 2022 from Tan Books, Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith. And, Joseph, I want to thank you for being on the show and for helping all of us better understand the kind of man we have lost, at least in this life, on this earth. But you said... At the top of the show, you're already praying to him. In some sense, uh, honestly, I feel closer to him now. I can talk to him now. I can ask for his help now. Uh, while he was you know, this side of the grave, you know, he, I, I was not able to do that. So I feel, I feel closer to him. I don't think we've lost him at all. I think we've gave the same. I want to leave it at that. That's such a, a great thought. And I believe you're right. And I felt the same way. So I may join you in that prayer. But again, it's Joseph Pierce. His book is Benedict the Sixteenth, Defender of the Faith. And Joseph, I look back to the next time you're on Church and Culture. Well, I look forward to the next time also. You keep me on my toes as you've shown today. And thanks be to God for that. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Thank you, Joseph. And to all of you who are listening, I'll be back on this day at this time next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.